0: section 23 of winsburg ohio this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by corrie samuel winsburg ohio by sherwood anderson section 23 death The stairway leading up to Dr. Reefy's office, in the Hefner block, above the Paris Dry Goods Store, was but dimly lighted. At the head of the stairway hung a lamp with a dirty chimney that was fastened by a bracket to the wall. The lamp had a tin reflector, brown with rust and covered with dust. The people who went up the stairway followed with their feet the feet of many who had gone before. The soft boards of the stairs had yielded under the pressure of feet and deep hollows marked the way. At the top of the stairway a turn to the right brought you to the doctor's door. To the left was a dark hallway filled with rubbish. Old chairs, carpenters' horses, stepladders and empty boxes lay in the darkness waiting for shins to be barked. The pile of rubbish belonged to the Paris Dry Goods Company. When a counter or a row of shelves in the store became useless, Clerks carried it up the stairway and threw it on the pile. Dr. Reefy's office was as large as a barn. A stove with a round paunch sat in the middle of the room. Around its base was piled sawdust, held in place by heavy planks nailed to the floor. By the door stood a huge table that had once been a part of the furniture of Herrick's clothing store, and that had been used for displaying custom-made clothes it was covered with books bottles and surgical instruments near the edge of the table lay three or four apples left by john spaniard a tree nurseryman who was dr reefy's friend and who had slipped the apples out of his pocket as he came in at the door at middle age dr reefy was tall and awkward the grey beard he later wore had not yet appeared but on the upper lip grew a brown moustache He was not a graceful man, as when he grew older, and was much occupied with the problem of disposing of his hands and feet. On summer afternoons, when she had been married many years, and when her son George was a boy of twelve or fourteen, Elizabeth Willard sometimes went up the worn steps to Dr. Reefy's office. Already the woman's naturally tall figure had begun to droop and to drag itself listlessly about. Ostensibly, she went to see the doctor because of her health, but on the half-dozen occasions when she had been to see him, the outcome of the visits did not primarily concern her health. She and the doctor talked of that, but they talked most of her life, of their two lives, and of the ideas that had come to them as they lived their lives in Winesburg. In the big empty office, the man and the woman sat looking at each other, and they were a good deal alike. Their bodies were different, as were also the colour of their eyes, the length of their noses, and the circumstances of their existence. But something inside them meant the same thing, wanted the same release, would have left the same impression on the memory of an onlooker. Later, and when he grew older and married a young wife, the doctor often talked to her of the hours spent with the sick woman, and expressed a good many things he had been unable to express to Elizabeth. He was almost a poet in his old age, and his notion of what happened took a poetic turn. I had come to the time in my life when prayer became necessary, and so I invented gods and prayed to them, he said. I did not say my prayers in words, nor did I kneel down, but sat perfectly still in my chair. In the late afternoon, when it was hot and quiet on Main Street, or in the winter, when the days were gloomy, The gods came into the office, and I thought no one knew about them. Then I found that this woman Elizabeth knew, that she worshipped also the same gods. I have a notion that she came to the office because she thought the gods would be there, but she was happy to find herself not alone, just the same. It was an experience that cannot be explained, although I suppose it is always happening to men and women in all sorts of places. On the summer afternoons, when Elizabeth and the doctor sat in the office and talked of their two lives, they talked of other lives also. Sometimes the doctor made philosophic epigrams, then he chuckled with amusement. Now and then, after a period of silence, a word was said, or a hint given, that strangely illuminated the life of the speaker. A wish became a desire, or a dream half-dead flared suddenly into life. For the most part, the words came from the woman, and she said them without looking at the man. Each time she came to see the doctor, the hotel keeper's wife talked a little more freely, and after an hour or two in his presence, went down the stairway into Main Street, feeling renewed and strengthened against the dullness of her days. With something approaching a girlhood swing to her body, she walked along. But when she had got back to her chair by the window of her room, and when darkness had come on, and a girl from the hotel dining room brought her dinner on a tray, she let it grow cold. Her thoughts ran away to her girlhood, with its passionate longing for adventure, and she remembered the arms of men that had held her when adventure was a possible thing for her. Particularly, she remembered one who had for a time been her lover, and who in the moment of his passion had cried out to her more than a hundred times saying the same words madly over and over. You dear, you dear, you lovely dear! The words, she thought, expressed something she would have liked to have achieved in life. In her room, in the shabby old hotel, the sick wife of the hotel-keeper began to weep, and putting her hands to her face, rocked back and forth. The words of her one friend, Dr Reefy, rang in her ears. Love is like a wind stirring the grass beneath trees on a black night, he had said. You must not try to make love definite. It is the divine accident of life. If you try to be definite and sure about it, and to live beneath the trees where soft night winds blow, the long hot day of disappointment comes swiftly and the gritty dust from passing waggons, gathers upon lips inflamed and made tender by kisses. Elizabeth Willard could not remember her mother, who had died when she was but five years old. Her girlhood had been lived in the most haphazard manner imaginable. Her father was a man who had wanted to be let alone, and the affairs of the hotel would not let him alone. He also had lived and died a sick man. Every day he arose with a cheerful face, but by ten o'clock in the morning all the joy had gone out of his heart. When a guest complained of the fare in the hotel dining room, or one of the girls who made up the beds got married and went away, he stamped on the floor and swore. At night, when he went to bed, he thought of his daughter growing up among the stream of people that drifted in and out of the hotel, and was overcome with sadness as the girl grew older and began to walk out in the evening with Wen he wanted to talk to her but when he tried was not successful. He always forgot what he wanted to say and spent the time complaining of his own affairs. In her girlhood and young womanhood Elizabeth had tried to be a real adventurer in life. At eighteen life had so gripped her that she was no longer a virgin. But although she had had half a dozen lovers before she married Tom Willard, she had never entered upon an adventure prompted by desire alone. Like all the women in the world, she wanted a real lover. Always there was something she sought blindly, passionately, some hidden wonder in life. The tall, beautiful girl with the swinging stride, who had walked under the trees with men, was forever putting out her hand into the darkness and trying to get hold of some other hand. In all the babble of words that fell from the lips of the men with whom she had ventured, she was trying to find what would be for her the true word. Elizabeth had married Tom Willard, a clerk in her father's hotel, because he was at hand and wanted to marry at the time when the determination to marry came to her. For a while, like most young girls. She thought marriage would change the face of life. If there was in her mind a doubt of the outcome of the marriage with Tom, she brushed it aside. Her father was ill and near death at the time, and she was perplexed because of the meaningless outcome of an affair in which she had just been involved. Other girls of her age in Winesburg were marrying men she had always known, grocery clerks or young farmers. In the evening they walked in Main Street with their husbands and when she passed they smiled happily. She began to think that the fact of marriage might be full of some hidden significance. Young wives with whom she talked spoke softly and shyly. It changes things to have a man of your own, they said. On the evening before her marriage the perplexed girl had a talk with her father. Later she wondered if the hours alone with the sick man had not led to her decision to marry. The father talked of his life, and advised the daughter to avoid being led into another such muddle. He abused Tom Willard, and that led Elizabeth to come to the clerk's defence. The sick man became excited, and tried to get out of bed. When she would not let him walk about, he began to complain. "'I've never been let alone,' he said. "'Although I've worked hard, I've not made the hotel pay. Even now I owe money at the bank.' "'You'll find that out when I'm gone.' The voice of the sick man became tense with earnestness. Being unable to arise, he put out his hand and pulled the girl's head down beside his own. "'There's a way out,' he whispered. "'Don't marry Tom Willard or anyone else here in Winesburg. "'There is eight hundred dollars in a tin box in my trunk. "'Take it and go away.' Again the sick man's voice became querulous. "'You've got to promise.' He declared. If you won't promise not to marry, give me your word that you'll never tell Tom about the money. It is mine, and if I give it to you, I've the right to make that demand. Hide it away. It is to make up to you for my failure as a father. Sometime it may prove to be a door, a great open door to you. Come now, I tell you I'm about to die. Give me your promise. In Dr. Reefy's office, Elizabeth, a tired, gaunt old woman at forty-one, sat in a chair by the stove and looked at the floor. By a small desk near the window sat the doctor. His hands played with a lead pencil that lay on the desk. Elizabeth talked of her life as a married woman. She became impersonal and forgot her husband, only using him as a lay figure to give point to her tale. And then I was married, and it did not turn out at all she said bitterly. As soon as I had gone into it I began to be afraid. Perhaps I knew too much before, and then perhaps I found out too much during my first night with him. I don't remember. What a fool I was. When father gave me the money and tried to talk me out of the thought of marriage, I would not listen. I thought of what the girls who were married had said of it, and I wanted marriage also. It wasn't Tom I wanted, it was marriage. When father went to sleep I leaned out of the window and thought of the life I had led. I didn't want to be a bad woman. The town was full of stories about me. I even began to be afraid Tom would change his mind. The woman's voice began to quiver with excitement. To Dr Reefy, who without realising what was happening had begun to love her, there came an odd illusion. He thought that as she talked, the woman's body was changing, that she was becoming younger, straighter, stronger. When he could not shake off the illusion, his mind gave it a professional twist. It is good for both her body and her mind, this talking, he muttered. The woman began telling of an incident that had happened one afternoon, a few months after her marriage. Her voice became steadier. In the late afternoon I went for a drive alone, she said. I had a buggy and a little grey pony I kept in Moyer's livery. Tom was painting and repapering rooms in the hotel. He wanted money, and I was trying to make up my mind to tell him about the $800 father had given to me. I couldn't decide to do it. I didn't like him well enough. There was always paint on his hands and face during those days, and he smelled of paint, He was trying to fix up the old hotel and make it new and smart. The excited woman sat up very straight in her chair and made a quick girlish movement with her hand as she told of the drive alone on the spring afternoon. It was cloudy and a storm threatened, she said. Black clouds made the green of the trees and the grass stand out so that the colours hurt my eyes. I went out Trunnion Pike a mile or more and then turned into a side road. The little horse went quickly along uphill and down. I was impatient. Thoughts came and I wanted to get away from my thoughts. I began to beat the horse. The black cloud settled down, and it began to rain. I wanted to go at a terrible speed, to drive on and on for ever. I wanted to get out of town, out of my clothes, out of my marriage, out of my body, out of everything. I almost killed the horse making him run, and when he could not run any more I got out of the buggy and ran a foot into the darkness until I fell and hurt my side. I wanted to run away from everything, but I wanted to run towards something, too. Don't you see, dear, how it was?" Elizabeth sprang out of the chair and began to walk about in the office. She walked as Dr. Reefy thought he had never seen anyone walk before. To her whole body there was a swing, a rhythm that intoxicated him. When she came and knelt on the floor beside his chair, he took her into his arms and began to kiss her passionately. I cried all the way home, she said, as she tried to continue the story of her wild ride, but he did not listen. You dear, you lovely dear, oh, you lovely dear, he muttered, and thought he held in his arms. Not the tired-out woman of forty-one, but a lovely and innocent girl who had been able, by some miracle, to project herself out of the husk of the body of the tired-out woman. Dr Reefy did not see the woman he had held in his arms again until after her death. On the summer afternoon in the office, when he was on the point of becoming her lover, a half-grotesque little incident brought his love-making quickly to an end. As the man and woman held each other tightly, heavy feet came tramping up the office stairs. The two sprang to their feet and stood, listening and trembling. The noise on the stairs was made by a clerk from the Paris Dry Goods Company. With a loud bang, he threw an empty box on a pile of rubbish in the hallway and then went heavily down the stairs. Elizabeth followed him almost immediately. The thing that had come to life in her as she talked to her one friend, died suddenly. She was hysterical, as was also Dr. Reefy, and did not want to continue the talk. Along the street she went, with the blood still singing in her body, but when she turned out of Main Street, and saw ahead the lights of the new Willard House, she began to tremble, and her knees shook so that for a moment she thought she would fall in the street. The sick woman spent the last few months of her life hungering for death. Along the road of death she went, seeking, hungering. She personified the figure of death, and made him now a strong, black haired youth running over hills, now a stern, quiet man, marked and scarred by the business of living. In the darkness of her room, she put out her hand, thrusting it from under the covers of her bed and she thought that death, like a living thing, put out his hand to her. Be patient, lover, she whispered. Keep yourself young and beautiful, and be patient. On the evening, when disease laid its heavy hand upon her and defeated her plans for telling her son George of the $800 hidden away, she got out of bed and crept half across the room, pleading with death for another hour of life. Wait, dear, the boy, the boy, the boy, she pleaded, as she tried with all of her strength to fight off the arms of the lover she had wanted so earnestly. Elizabeth died one day in March, in the year when her son George became eighteen, and the young man had but little sense of the meaning of her death. Only time could give him that. For a month he had seen her lying white and still and speechless in her bed. And then one afternoon the doctor stopped him in the hallway and said a few words. The young man went into his own room and closed the door. He had a queer, empty feeling in the region of his stomach. For a moment he sat staring at the floor, and then jumping up went for a walk. Along the station platform he went, and around through residence streets past the high school building, thinking almost entirely of his own affairs. The notion of death could not get hold of him, and he was in fact a little annoyed that his mother had died on that day. He had just received a note from Helen White, the daughter of the town banker, in answer to one from him. "'Tonight I could have gone to see her, and now it will have to be put off,' he thought, half angrily. Elizabeth died on a Friday afternoon at three o'clock. It had been cold and rainy in the morning, but in the afternoon the sun came out. Before she died she lay paralysed for six days, unable to speak or move, and with only her mind and her eyes alive. For three of the six days she struggled, thinking of her boy, trying to say some few words in regard to his future and in her eyes there was an appeal so touching that all who saw it kept the memory of the dying woman in their minds for years. Even Tom Willard, who had always half-resented his wife, forgot his resentment, and the tears ran out of his eyes and lodged in his moustache. The moustache had begun to turn grey, and Tom coloured it with dye. There was oil in the preparation he used for the purpose and the tears, catching in the moustache and being brushed away by his hand, formed a fine mist-like vapour. In his grief, Tom Millard's face looked like the face of a little dog that has been out a long time in bitter weather. George came home along Main Street at dark on the day of his mother's death, and after going to his own room to brush his hair and clothes, went along the hallway and into the room where the body lay. There was a candle on the dressing table by the door, and Dr Reefy sat in a chair by the bed. The doctor arose and started to go out. He put out his hand as though to greet the younger man, and then, awkwardly, drew it back again. The air of the room was heavy with the presence of the two self-conscious human beings, and the man hurried away. The dead woman's son sat down in a chair and looked at the floor. He again thought of his own affairs, and definitely decided he would make a change in his life, that he would leave Winesburg. I will go to some city. Perhaps I can get a job on some newspaper, he thought. And then his mind turned to the girl with whom he was to have spent this evening, and again he was half angry at the turn of events that had prevented his going to her. In the dimly lighted room with the dead woman the young man began to have thoughts. His mind played with thoughts of life as his mother's mind had played with thought of death. He closed his eyes and imagined that the red young lips of Helen White touched his own lips. His body trembled and his hands shook. And then something happened. The boy sprang to his feet and stood stiffly. He looked at the figure of the dead woman under the sheets, and shame for his thoughts swept over him, so that he began to weep. A new notion came into his mind, and he turned and looked guiltily about, as though afraid he would be observed. George Willard became possessed of a madness to lift the sheet from the body of his mother and look at her face. The thought that had come into his mind gripped him terribly. He became convinced that not his mother, but someone else lay in the bed before him. The conviction was so real that it was almost unbearable. The body under the sheets was long and in death looked young and graceful. To the boy, held by some strange fancy, it was unspeakably lovely. The feeling that the body before him was alive, that in another moment a lovely woman would spring out of the bed and confront him, became so overpowering that he could not bear the suspense. Again and again he put out his hand. Once he touched and half-lifted the white sheet that covered her. But his courage failed, and he, like Dr. Reefy, turned and went out of the room. In the hallway outside the door he stopped and trembled, so that he had to put a hand against the wall to support himself. That's not my mother, that's not my mother in there, he whispered to himself, and again his body shook. With fright and uncertainty. When Aunt Elizabeth Swift, who had come to watch over the body, came out of an adjoining room, he put his hand into hers and began to sob, shaking his head from side to side, half blind with grief. My mother is dead, he said. And then, forgetting the woman, he turned and stared at the door, through which he had just come. The dear, the dear, oh, the lovely dear. The boy, urged by some impulse outside himself, muttered aloud. As for the eight hundred dollars the dead woman had kept hidden so long, and that was to give George Willard his start in the city, it lay in the tin box behind the plaster, by the foot of his mother's bed. Elizabeth had put it there a week after their marriage, breaking the plaster away with a stick. Then she got one of the workmen her husband was at that time employing about the hotel to mend the wall. I jammed the corner of the bed against it," she had explained to her husband, unable at the moment to give up her dream of release. The release that, after all, came to her but twice in her life. In the moments when her lovers, Death and Dr Reefy, held her in their arms. End of section twenty-three